this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jam Down the Go for August 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, we're going to be focusing on three issues, emergency care for older persons with frailty and cognitive impairment, the uses and limitations of virtual versus face-to-face interactions, and cardiopulmonary resuscitation in the nursing home. As part of each topic, we will discuss two papers from the August issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Once again, I'll be speaking with JAMDA's co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan and Brown are both faculty in family medicine and geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Thank you. We're happy to be here again. Happy to be here. All right, so our first topic is gonna be emergency department care, something that all nursing home clinicians have concerns about, yet can't live without. Our first paper on that topic is a review paper on the characteristics of quality emergency department care for persons living with dementia. And before we talk about the article, I just wanna mention a couple of things. First, AMDA is collaborating with ASEP, or the American College of Emergency Physicians, on some best practices to help our patients, including avoiding inappropriate management of asymptomatic bacteriuria as a UTI and sending patients to the ED because of asymptomatic hypertension. And there's a couple of others too. Uh, So we're excited about that and hope that some good comes of it. Second, as a longtime resident of San Diego County, I'm proud to report that just last week, we became the first county in the country to have all of its 18 hospitals emergency departments accredited as as geriatric emergency departments with support from the Gary and Mary West Foundation. So uh, that's that's pretty cool and we hope to see that uh, be a growing trend across the country. Uh, In any event, Dr. Brown, please tell us about this paper that relates specifically to dementia in the ED. Absolutely. I completely agree that emergency departments are a key and essential part of quality care. So I'm incredibly grateful to our emergency department in many cases, but truly wish that they all had the opportunity to be trained in geriatrics and to be geriatric friendly, if you will. This article looked to summarize the research on optimal ED care practices for those who live with dementia. The author's goal was to develop research priorities and a series of patient intervention comparison outcome questions were developed, which included first, what components of emergency department care improve patient-centered outcomes for persons with dementia? How do emergency care needs for persons with dementia differ from other patients in the emergency department? They conducted a scoping review 
And that looked at more than 6,000 publications that were identified. 23 were abstracted to meet those questions in question one, and 26 were abstracted to meet question number two. Emergency care considerations for people living with dementia included functional dependence, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, and identification of and management of pain. As we would likely expect based on our own patient experiences, concerns regarding emergency department care processes, the emergency department environment, and meeting a person living with dementia's basic needs were described. There are great options though. A comprehensive geriatric assessment and a dedicated emergency in the emergency department, a home hospital program, and a low stimulation bed shade and contact-free monitor all showed improvement in patient-centered healthcare use outcomes. Unfortunately though, all of these interventions were single site studies evaluating different outcomes. So the results informed the following research priorities. First, training in dementia care competencies. Second, patient-centric and care partner-centric evaluation interventions. Third, the impact of community and ident identity-based factors on emergency department care for people living with dementia. Fourth, economic or other implementation science measures to address viability. And fifth, environmental, operational, personnel, system or policy changes to improve emergency department care for people living with dementia. The bottom line is that a wide range of components of both emergency department care practices and emergency department care needs for patients living with dementia have been studied. Although many interventions show positive results, the lack of depth and reproducible results prevent specific recommendations on best practices in these emergency departments for people living with dementia. Uh, thanks for that, Dr. Brown. And uh, uh, you know, I this article with the the acronym PLWD. I mean, it looks like plywood to me. And it's I don't know. I mean, I know it's not politically correct, and I agree that we should not say demented people anymore. But uh, I I mean, what's wrong with dementia patients? I guess it's a label. Any any uh, insight into that, either of you? Well, we have to go with what's um, current politically correctness, you know, and we just do that. And okay. so older persons is what we say, and persons living with dementia is the politically correct way, um, at least in the academic world. Um, but those of us who've been around for a long time do cling to our um, often um, simpler <laughs> ways of talking about things. I don't know, Carl, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I get that. I just I, like, for example, I for many years, I used the term elderly, you know, just to describe anybody in, in the geriatric population. And uh, but I agree, it's kind of an ageist term. But I, I mean, I'm not sure dementia patients or people with dementia is any more pejorative than persons living with dementia. I, it just sounds a little stilted to me, but, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old uh, baby boomer and, you know, probably <laughs> clueless on so many levels. But anyway, so I'm sure, getting back to the article, I'm sure we've all seen patients sent to the emergency department who get delirious, you know, then they fall trying to escape or maybe just trying to get up to self-toilet. And we do see really bad outcomes that come from a simple visit to the ED. Uh, and I think 
awareness on the part of our emergency medicine colleagues is a great first step mm -hmm. in preventing avoidable bad outcomes and in creating ED environments that are less bewildering, noisy, and invasive uh, should be helpful regardless of the findings of this paper. And I, I mean, the other question is, let's, before they even get to the emergency room, do we really, really need to send them? And is that, uh, you know, is that consistent with their goals of care? Uh, and that's, right. that's something that falls to us. Um, either of you, uh, additional comments? Well, you know, um, COVID has even made it worse. You know, we've got two yeah. different emergency departments in our kind of hospital system. And I have a, a friend who went to both within the same week. And one of them let her ride in with her husband and, you know, and be with him. And the other one kept her out for four hours because they wanted him to get tested for COVID before they would wow. let her in. Wow. And, um, you know, it's just, we need to really think about the person with dementia and the fact that they need they need somebody with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the whole age friendly thing. I mean, it's it's uh, really magnified when it comes to uh, to people with dementia. So, um, well, I think there's a lot of room for for improvement, and we'll uh, continue to strive for that. And thanks for publishing this that at least uh, points us in a few specific directions. Uh, so we'll continue later with another paper related to emergency departments, but for now, let's switch to a very different topic, uh, one that should be of interest to all of our listeners, how best to receive continuing education, and specifically looking at the question of virtual versus in-person continuing education. Dr. Brown, tell us about this study. Sure. Most of my job is actually spent as the residency program director here at the Department of Family Medicine. So I've spent countless hours thinking about virtual learning, the pros, the cons, the good and the bad, and the ways to meaning, meaningfully convey education. I've also thought extensively about how virtual learning has impacted our students and learners. So this article was particular in, particularly interesting to me as it examines learners' perceptions of virtual learning during the pandemic, as well as the use of virtual modalities for interprofessional education in primary care. I don't think anything presented here is novel, but it does perhaps encourage us all to continue to look for ways to meaningfully and safely gather for learning. So onto the study. So in this study, they um, took a look at booster days, which is an educational session that they've used. Four of the seven in-person annual booster day educational sessions that they used for health professionals working in primary care memory clinics in Ontario, Canada, happened to be canceled when the pandemic was declared. These sessions were replaced with two sessions delivered via live stream video conferencing. The authors compared booster day session participants' perceptions of the in-person and the virtual sessions to assess their preferences for in-person or virtual sessions in the future. Interprofessional primary care-based memory clinic team participants were surveyed on this. Using a chi-squared test and analysis of variance, the authors identified significant differences in reaction, attitude, and preference ratings between delivery modalities. There were no significant differences in satisfaction, relevance, knowledge acquisition, or intentions to apply new knowledge between the delivery modalities. Perhaps unsurprisingly though, attendance via video conferencing was perceived as useful, enjoyable, engaging, and more feasible and a more feasible way to attend. 
Also, as I would predict, it was rated as less enjoyable and perceived as having fewer opportunities for networking than in-person sessions. So to me, the bottom line here is that most participants preferred the in-person session to the virtual video conferencing for networking in particular. Quality engagement and networking as afforded by in-person education are highly valued by health professionals attending dementia-related education sessions. Interprofessional education on complex health issues of our older people and older populations require interprofessional perspectives to be shared and that might be done and best suited to in-person formats. Yeah, well, that all makes intuitive sense and that's in line with my personal experiences. And also I think, you know, with AMDA and we did a, you know, all virtual meeting one year and then it was a hybrid. Um, and I, I just, I don't think virtual meetings will ever completely replace in-person, uh, but they do have plenty of advantages beyond just not having to wear pants. Uh, <laughs> Bill, anything to add? Well, you know, if I want to learn facts, I can always read it. You know, what I found is that much of my most important learning is it's informal. It takes place, you know, before and after presentations, you know, as I talk among ourselves, you know, perhaps over coffee, discuss questions and cases. So just as informal interactions are critical to good management, they're also critical to relevant learning. So while I hate to travel for a meeting, I will generally get more out of the meeting if it's in person. Yeah, yeah, I pretty much 100% on that. So, well, good. And now, a word from our sponsor. Your residents who have a neurologic condition or brain injury may not be crying because of their depression. It may be pseudo-bulbar effect. For resources related to screening for PBA, please visit pbainfo.org. And now, back to our podcast. So now let's return to the topic of emergency departments with our guest, JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Phil Sloan. The uh, present results of a study that used telemedicine to assess acute changes of condition in nursing home residents uh, with the explicit goal of reducing unnecessary emergency department transfers. So Phil, what can we learn from this paper in August JAMDA? Well, this study was conducted before COVID. It looked at the impact of telemedicine on emergency department transfers in three Maryland nursing homes. How they set things up is pretty interesting because it shows what's needed to implement telemedicine connections between an emergency department you know, and the physicians and nursing home staff. Similar procedures would be needed to make telemedicine routine between medical providers and nursing homes, especially as in this case, they involved emergency department providers. Here's what they did. They formally added telemedicine to the nursing home staff scope of practice, integrating telemedicine service into the nursing home standards of care. They revised nursing home admission policies so that incoming residents had to opt out of potential telemedicine visits, and that helped cement telemedicine as a standard of care. In addition, they then credentialed the emergency department physicians to provide telemedicine consults. And they trained medical providers and nursing home staff in both settings on the use of telemedicine equipment. They created standardized telemedicine visit forms. They assisted nursing homes in acquiring telemedicine equipment. And they identified in each facility a champion, you know, usually a registered nurse, to be a resource for training and troubleshooting. You know? hmm. 
kind of tires you out just list listing all those things but you know to yes. do a formal thing that's kind of what you have to do i think it's a nice list for those of us who really believe as i do that we need more telemedicine especially around acute changes in condition what they did was when a change in condition was identified by clinical staff you know the nurses the resident was evaluated by the nursing staff on duty and the acuity of their condition along with their advanced directors were used to decide whether to manage the problem in-house with the later medical provider visit or whether to trigger a telemedicine visit with an emergency department physician. If so, they had a telemedicine cart along with a staff member who moved into the resident's bedside. Before initiating the visit, residents were asked if they agreed to the visit. Here's what they found. Of 466 changes in condition over three nursing homes, 144 were felt to potentially need a telemedicine consult. But 58% of the time, the consult never happened. Of the consults that did occur, half led to transfer to the emergency department and half led to plans and orders to manage the problem in the nursing homes. Thus, we can infer that rapid medical evaluation by telemedicine could prevent as many as half of emergency department visits. And for those that were transferred, emergency department staff felt better prepared to manage the patient. Biggest barrier was doing the visits um, where they claimed it was the nursing home staff and staffing issues. Yeah, well, that that's a lot to uh, to unpack there, and I think you know for those of us who did virtual visits uh, on a much more frequent basis during the pandemic, staffing could be a problem. It was you know they were busy hustling, just trying to do direct patient care, and sometimes might not have time to sit with an iPad uh, at a resident's bedside. But you know, I'm I'm thinking back to the ill-fated venture capital-funded Call Nine from a few years back which I think had over $30 million of funding and some support in Congress. Uh, and this, this one would have placed an EMT in our nursing homes and an emergency medicine physician on the receiving end of telemedicine. And uh, you know, to me, first of all, I mean, if they need an EMT, like, like why would you have a, an EMT instead of just a, an experienced nursing home nurse? <laughs> Similarly, why on earth would you have an emergency room doc who hasn't been trained in geriatrics and who calls everything a UTI, with all due respect to our EM physician listeners, who calls everybody dehydrated, even if they've got a, you know, a BUN of six and a creatinine of 0.5 and a, and a sodium of 139, you know, um, why would we want that person or that team of people evaluating our patients, the patients that we look after, right? Um, you know, so is that, is that practical or even appropriate, right? I mean, who's best situated to determine whether a person can be treated in place or not, but then somebody who actually practices in that care setting? Yeah, you know, I found myself being pretty skeptical about this paper, you know, because I've, I've worked in a rural emergency department and I just can't imagine that the emergency department staff, if they could get, get on the line at all, we're gonna spend much time asking questions. And, um, and then, as you said, Carl, knowing the setting and kind of knowing geriatrics, I, it just, I'd rather have the attending physician contacted by telemedicine. And that's the direction I'd like to see things go, the on-call doc. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of variables, right? So like, what is the change of condition? how quickly a particular facility can accommodate stat orders for labs or imaging, what are the capabilities as far as, you know, IVs, antibiotics, uh, 
uh, and specifically what telemedicine equipment is available, right? Uh, like, can you actually auscultate somebody's lungs? And certainly for some conditions, a, a telemedicine visit is much, much better than just a phone call, which is how we usually make that determination. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're going to see more of a push for after hours and weekend telemedicine coverage by geriatricians. In fact, we're already seeing it. Uh, and I think this really does have the potential to reduce unnecessary ED transfers considerably. Uh, and I have to admit, you know, as a person who takes my own call, there's a definite disincentive for me to order stat labs in the evening, even on a patient I know well, because what does that mean? I'm going to get those results at 2 a.m. to report the results out. So, I mean, I, I'll, I'll do it, but, uh, you know, imagine you're just an on-call person that doesn't even know the patient. There's going to be very little incentive for you to do the right thing and try to treat that person in-house, right? It's just, yeah. it's just much simpler to, to just pull the 911 trigger uh, then take the time, effort, and also open yourself up to liability exposure um, by trying to treat in-house. So that's a it's a complicated uh, a set of malaligned incentives, I guess. All right. So continuing on the topic of acute changes in condition, our last paper for today is about the ultimate change in condition: a cardiopulmonary arrest and the success rate of resuscitation in older persons, which I'm sure most of our listeners are well aware is not uh, not like on TV. So Phil, what are the take-home points from this paper? Well, I found this paper you know, quite interesting. You know, it describes four years and 37,550 cardiac arrests for metropolitan Tokyo, Japan, where as far as I can tell, standards of emergency care are pretty similar to here in the United States. The study compares the success rates of CPR between nursing homes and people living in the community, older persons, 65 and older. The primary outcome was one month survival rate, which is a better metric than, you know, more proximal ones like return of spontaneous circulation. Hmm. Now, I've always heard that the success rate for nursing home residents is abysmal. And indeed it was 2.6%. Even in the best case scenario, a witnessed arrest during the daytime with bystander CPR, only 8% lived a month. But here's the interesting thing. In the community, the rates were even worse. Hmm. Overall, one month survival rate was 1.8%. This is even though community populations were less frail and had fewer comorbidities than nursing home residents. The key to survival included whether the event was witnessed, whether the witness started CPR, and the time it took the EMS to arrive on scene. In both settings, unwitnessed arrests had a 0% survival rate. Wow. For me, bottom line is that nursing home cardiac arrest, if deemed appropriate from the standpoint of prognosis and advanced directives, has outcomes that are no worse than those in the community at large for persons age 65 and older. Practically speaking, it means having good, informed, advanced care planning decisions so that CPR, when provided, is appropriate and the prognosis is better than zero. Yeah, wow. So I, I think I was actually going to write an editorial for this piece, but it, I think it fell off my radar. But it was a fascinating piece. And, you know, again, a lot of our patients and their families think CPR is like it is on TV with, you know, you, grandma gets a couple of pumps and a jolt and then, you know, she's dancing out of the hospital the next day, making a, a rapid full recovery. And that's just not at all, you know, in line with real life. Um, and this study doesn't even really get into the risks and burdens of CPR, like, you know, rib fractures and, you know, ruptured spleens and whatnot. 
But I do believe education with realistic expectations about CPR goes a long way towards helping people make truly informed decisions as part of their advanced care planning discussions. And for me, it's one of the really important and meaningful parts of my patient care responsibilities. Like, you know, explaining that when you make somebody a DNR on a pulsed form, that does not mean just let my mom die. That means, you know, if my mom still has a pulse or is breathing, do what it says under section B. But if you come upon my mom and she's already dead, she has no pulse, she's not breathing, do not try to bring her back. And this study really, really brings that home in that not one person in, in the community group or the nursing home group uh, survived an unwitnessed arrest. So, I mean, that really, it, it, we, it borders on futility. And I feel bad for nursing home nurses who have to do CPR on, on somebody who, I mean, it's, it's a, an act of violence and it's, it's traumatic for the person providing it. Uh, and so many of the arrests we have, it is, it's, it's unwitnessed. It's not like they walk in there and they suddenly lose their pulse. The, the nurse, you know, the CNA reports, oh my gosh, this person is, you know, has no vitals. Um, so the, there's a 0% uh, chance of survival. Why are we making them do that, right? I, I don't know how you feel about it, Phil, but I, I just think it's, um, um, it's unfortunate that uh, people do not make these decisions ahead of hand, ahead of time and say, if it's a 0% chance, don't do it. I'm with you 100% on that, Carl. You know, in, in post-acute care, it's a little bit different. You know, um, you've got people with better prognoses, um, but um, in general, for long-term nursing home residents, um, the decision to do CPR should be by far the exception. And it's just, you know, it's a matter of, you know, it's not always easy to communicate it and communicate it well, um, but the statistics do help. Yeah, yep. I'll, I'll definitely be using the the information from this article to, uh, you know, I'll incorporate that into my decisions. And I, I don't specifically recall if if the setup in Japan includes uh, other than long-term care, you know, in, in other words, were some of these post-acute people who were rehabbing and that sort of thing. But either way, if you're not in the room when it happens, um, it sounds like uh, we really shouldn't be doing it, right? It's uh, it's that's um sobering thought. And I think we could all uh, learn to try to communicate that better. And not so much that we're, we're trying to get the DNR or trying to, you know, be a death panel doctor, trying to convince the person to, to um, forego things that, 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 you know, they paid money into the system or any of that stuff, just more, um, we are not obligated to do things that are, that are medically non-beneficial, um, like CPR in a nursing home resident that, that had an unwitnessed arrest. It could have been an hour ago. So, well, okay. Um, on that bright note, <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for this Jamda on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of associate editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond, please take a look at the August 2022 issue. And Drs. Sloan and Brown, thanks as always for spending your time with Jamda On The Go. Thank you, Carl, for hosting and organizing this. Yeah, and uh, so, all right, references for the podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. 
Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jammed On The Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals.